0: In my experience, yes, okay, I was at that age, I was a teenage girl, but it wasn't about losing weight um, at all. I was a fit, healthy athlete. The last thing I wanted to do was lose weight. For me, it was just about restricting something I enjoyed and I got pleasure in a strange way of denying myself things.
1: That was Amy Dingle, a peer support worker with local charity, Jersey Eating Disorders Support, and you're listening to the Bailiwick Podcast with me, David Conway. A recent government report has shown that eating disorders in young people have more than tripled in the last four years, with forty-four cases as of April 2021, and no dedicated service specifically designed for children with the condition currently offered by government. It's not only children affected either with Jersey Eating Disorders support also reporting an increase in adults coming to seek help. The charity, which currently has 10 peer support workers, offers a range of services to those affected by eating disorders, as well as their friends and families, including group sessions and individual counselling. I sat down with Amy Dingle, both someone in recovery from an eating disorder herself, and a peer support worker at the charity, to discuss her experience and what help there is for those living with the illness. Just before we start as well... A warning that there is some potentially distressing subject matter discussed in the episode. Amy Dingle, welcome to the Bailiwick podcast. Would you be able to explain when you first experienced the first symptoms of an eating disorder and how that began to affect your everyday life?
0: I think I was around the age of 12. Um, I was in my first year of secondary school. I seem to remember in year seven, everything was fine. I remember being just happy and just enjoying life, enjoying my sport, enjoying everything. And then... I actually remember it's one day um, I was buying a, like a flapjack from a um, a vending machine and one day I just didn't have time to finish it all so I saved it for my lunch thinking oh yeah I can save up because I love food um, and then I just didn't have enough time to to eat it um, and so I, I, um, I then had my lunch and then slowly I kind of got the sense of happiness by restricting myself from eating at the time and putting off till later so slowly that just built up and i i don't know it just spiraled and then i think when my brain sort of went into energy deficit so i had lack of nutrition it i think i believe triggered my predisposition for an eating disorder um genetic predisposition um which then spiraled all of my behaviors and thoughts to around food, obsessing about food, exercise. And I slowly declined, um, in, in my weight in my personality. And then it, it affected all of my life. Um, but it took a men it took quite a few years. So that was at the age of 12. And really it was only noticeable around the age of 17 where I was, um, visibly as well as mentally ill
1: and then once you finally did notice those symptoms and once you finally did say that this was an issue what support was there for you
0: initially uh, my mum took me to the doctor um, and I saw a GP however I think I, I hope now that there's better awareness of eating disorders but at that point there wasn't and I was just told that oh it's just a phase I'll get through it I'll just. just just eat more, like maybe go to McDonald's a bit more often. Um, And I was sent away and I think I, looking back now, I think maybe I felt like misunderstood and um, it really spiraled my eating disorder at that point. And I I, I really fell into a real downward spiral. Um, So I think it then happened, my mum actually had to directly contact mental health services to get me um some help. Um but it it was quite a process and it was quite hard for her to have to do that. And I managed to get an appointment eventually and I did go through the system but I didn't really get very far. But then it got to I was 18 and I wanted to go to university and there was no stopping me, even though I wasn't up very well, I'm a very determined person um and I said oh no I'll be fine when I go to university I'll be absolutely fine so off I went to university All oh, you know everything's fine and it it very rapidly um decreased um in, in health um and I ended up going to an eating disorders treatment center and I was referred there from Loughborough University to uh, Leicester Eating Disorders Service and there um that was um that was an experience, uh, one I wouldn't wish on my enemy, but at the same time, I learned a lot, a lot. It was a big wake up call to life. I'd been so used to being in my little bubble of Jersey of really quite monocultural to be honest. Um, and then I was in the middle of Leicester with nurses that were of all different races and genders and ages. And it was really good for me and it made me aware of what the what the world is. But it's not as cushy as jersey, and if I cried, it didn't matter.
1: Would you be able to talk a little bit more about the treatment you know you received there?
0: Um, yeah, so it was a quite a few years ago, and the place has closed down now, um, and you know gone to a different location because I had leaking roofs. Um, but it was um, it it saved my life. So don't get me wrong, it saved my life, and the staff there they did all they could to to help me and the really oversubscribed, um, people there. So it really, it it entailed really just, um, refeeding, to be honest. Uh, there was a level of psychotherapy, I suppose, but really it was just about meals and it was a competitive um environment. So there were some people that didn't want to be, be didn't want to get better. So they were on like tubes to refeed them. Um there was people being restrained at times. We you had one to one supervision to start with and then you'd go in a dorm with everyone. Um yeah, to your your dorm to sleep. Um and then also in the dining room and it was like a somebody didn't finish their meal in a certain period of time, you would then um all have to go and have a meeting about why that didn't they didn't finish and it was all quite stressful. But again, they are different now and I know there is help out there where they do different treatment methods and they've they've worked with the patients a bit more, so it's a bit more individual care. It was just a bit more one size fits all when I was there.
1: And when you came out, how was recovery then?
0: So I want to leave as soon as possible and I was there a while but the beginning of um, the next year at uni so I was able to like postpone a year um, and then re-enter the year later so I, I did that but I really wasn't mentally or physically well yet um, but I was still as I always am determined oh, I'm going back there's no stopping me um, so I went back and Yeah, the same thing happened. It didn't take long to just deteriorate again. And that time I did hit my lowest point of my life, to be honest. Um, And I, I now understand when people feel like they've hit rock bottom because that time I didn't want to go into hospital. I really didn't. I knew what the first time was and I had to go in against my will. And that was... I I was unexpected it was done in a way that they told me not to tell my my parents were told beforehand but they were told they could not tell me so I went in with just a backpack on my back you know with my books in from uni just for my outpatient appointment and then they basically said I couldn't leave I was in the middle of England with no one I knew not even a toothbrush with me um and I just had my hopes of university sort of ripped out of my hands so uh yeah that was a hard time um but I, I made it through. So this is why I, I now work as like a peer worker. And I know that when someone's hit rock bottom, it doesn't mean that's it. That you can get through it. You, even though at that point you feel absolutely hopeless. Like there's nothing that can ever make you sel- yourself feel better at that point. There is. And you just have to find someone to speak to. Or just try and find some support somewhere. Or just even if you don't believe it, just have hope that it could get better.
1: For you, what misconceptions still prevail that you would like to see addressed?
0: I think there's still the stigma that it's it's all about teenage girls, like all looking in the media, oh, that person's skinny, let's look like them. And they just lose weight to look like a catwalk model. In my experience, yes, okay, I was at that age, I was a teenage girl, but it wasn't about losing weight um, at all. I was a fit, healthy athlete the last thing I want to do is lose weight. For me, it was just about restricting something I enjoyed and I got pleasure in a strange way of denying myself things. I don't know why. But yes, and also it isn't that age as well. There's so many people suffering at any age. There's actually been studies recently about pregnant women and actually it can be the amount of stress over that can actually cause someone to kind of um go into to unintentionally reduce their food, maybe, and or if they're breastfeeding or something like that, it takes a lot of energy. And that can almost spare on spur on an eating disorder because if that person has the genetic predisposition for an eating disorder, any time they go into that energy deficit, any like lower than what their energy needs, it can trigger something in their brain which spurs this eating disorder on. So it really can happen at any time of life and at any point someone can get help and it's not too late. If you've had it for 40, 50 years, that doesn't actually matter. You can still recover. I've seen it. I know a lot of people who've had eating disorders and are fully recovered. I believe are fully, fully recovered and they've had it their entire lives. Some of them don't even remember a time without it, but now... They have moved on and they're living a full life.
1: And for you now, day to day, living with, having lived with an eating disorder, can you talk about life now as a peer worker?
0: Yeah, so I am still in recovery. I'm not there yet. Um, I stepped back from any help, a formal help um, in mental health service um, a good while ago, actually before lockdown. And for me, um, it was... The right thing for me to do because of where I'm at in it for myself. Um, and I still speak with people who have recovered. And that's been the thing that's actually really pushing me on. So, um, because it's so inspiring when you speak to someone who is either going through it as well and you can kind of, you know, not feel alone. Um, but also to see people like moving on and being positive about recovery is, is great. But yeah, as a peer worker now um, I, um, I I sometimes speak I speak with people um, and just use my experience um, and just say that they're not alone basically and, and their thoughts um, although they just seem crazy, sometimes, you just can't um, describe what your, th- these thoughts sometimes to anyone, Everyone, anyone would else that doesn't have an eating disorder wouldn't really get them. Like they're just, they can be so random and there's a lot of people who are very intelligent and then to get these like intrusive thoughts that seem so strange can be really confusing for a person. So I like to speak with people and say, look, that's not, it's not, it's okay. Like to be thinking these thoughts. Um, but like I am, let's work to see how you can notice these thoughts, but it doesn't mean you have to act on them.
1: Would you be able to just give an example of one of those intrusive thoughts or an idea of what they entail?
0: Quite a lot about eating disorders sometimes comes with comparison. So i do one about like body weight, because that it's a lot of people do have body dysmorphia and maybe that sort of thing. So someone might see someone's like, oh, that person's skinny, oh, I better i i better not have that piece of cake because that way i want to look like them um and so a person in recovery can see that as a thought that's a thought um that i shouldn't have that piece of cake because that person is that and then in recovery you can think well okay that's that's just a thought by not eating this pizza it doesn't mean i'm going to look like that and why do i want to look that what is the reason for that is there it's, is it just about my, my body weight or my self-worth? That doesn't, it's not the same thing. Your physical body and your self-worth and who you are as a person, your identity is not your weight. But there's lots of intrusive thoughts like, oh, I don't deserve this and, and I don't deserve people's time. And it doesn't always have to be about the food. Um, often a person lacks um, like self-esteem.
1: You've obviously been through the system. You've seen the support do you think there could be more support on island for people with eating disorders?
0: I must admit, yes. Um, I think it's a very—I'm not too sure of who is in the island um, in the mental health service is. There's only a few. It's a very small team, and I think they do the best they can, but it's just not enough to support the growing people, growing amount of people who are suffering with eating disorders. So. I believe maybe a, a bit more specialised help that on the island, such as maybe a dietitian that has a therapeutic t- um, approach towards eating disorders, or a, a bigger team to help and support those over here. I mean, as a charity um, with the Jed's Eating Disorder Support Jeds, um, we have seen a huge increase in numbers recently, um, and it's and it's great to see them now attending our our group and getting that sense of community and they're not alone fighting this uh, um, which has helped I think I believe quite a few not just sufferers but carers as well.
1: Amy's experience eventually led her mother Karen Dingle to become the chairperson of Jersey Eating Disorders Support Group a role which she has now held since last year. The charity which is now 37 years old began with simple monthly meetings but has since widened its remit to include a multitude of services, including weekly Zoom sessions across the pandemic. Sitting down with Karen, I asked her about some of the work the charity does, and why she thinks there's been an increase on the island. Now talking about um, eating disorders, there seems to be in Jersey a growth of cases in young people certainly recently, according to the mental health strategy that's recently been released. Um, It has tripled over the last four years in young people and is now at 44 cases. Would you be able to talk a bit about why you think this increase has occurred?
2: I think during the pandemic, uh, we've all felt a little bit out of control. And with someone with an eating disorder, what happens is if they feel out of control, they put all their control into what they eat. So because that's something they can control. So I think that's what's made the problem so much worse is that everybody's feeling a little bit out of control of what's going on. Some people overeat, some people undereat, but it amounts to the same thing. It's not being able to cope with the situation that they may be living in.
1: And I spoke to Amy about... um misconceptions and the fact that it's it's not just young people as well it can happen to anyone at any age and she mentioned you are seeing a growing increasing caseload yourselves could you talk a bit about the fact that it does affect adults as well
2: yes absolutely um eating disorders um, people think that they're just for teenagers but actually it can happen at any age um as young as five and six and right up until 70 80s it's there, men woman um it, it it doesn't discriminate it's, it's it's any any anybody can get an eating disorder
1: and in terms of support obviously jets offer a certain amount of counseling from yourselves but um in terms of the island's mental health support do you think there's currently enough provisions or would you like to see more come into play
2: I would like to see more people specialized in eating disorders. It is um the the most challenging mental health condition and it just needs specialist help because it's it's a complicated illness and everybody's different. So it it needs somebody who's got a really strong understanding of eating disorders to be able to help them.
1: And in terms of that help and assistance would you be able to talk a bit about what it is to support someone with an eating disorder and help what that entails?
2: As far far as we're concerned if um, a parent contacts me if their, their, their son or daughter is under 18 I will always suggest that they go to the GP and the GP will decide whether they need to be referred to Cam's Child and adolescent mental health services, or if they're over 18, um, adult mental health services. If parent needs support, I can offer them counselling or one of our peer support workers will see them and meet up with them. Uh, It may be that they would benefit from being in a group situation, and we have uh, on the first and the third Monday of every month we're holding currently Zoom support sessions. And they may decide that they would like to benefit from the experience of other people who have been in a similar situation to them. So they will come along to a support group meeting. They don't have to show their face if they don't want to. They don't have to show their name if they don't want to. They can just come along and listen to what's going on. And in the what we usually find is that if somebody does come along and just listens, usually by the second or third time that they're there, they feel confident enough to speak and then maybe later on they're confident enough to put their their camera on so they can be seen
1: and in talking about eating disorders themselves and the roots of them i you know i spoke to amy again about um the fact that they're they're often not what the public perception is of them simply body dysmorphia there are a number of other symptoms would you be able to explain a bit more about that
2: most teenage particularly girls go on a diet at some stage in, in and it's only those people who have a Gen- genetic predisposition to an eating disorder that will go on to have um a, a, an eating disorder it's almost like once you go into energy deficit it's almost like a switch going off in your head and it switches on the eating disorder and this is why it's so important for somebody to be to refeed to get back to a normal body weight so that that switch can go off again. And it's once that switch goes off, they can then go back to to not having any any issues or or very few compared to when they're in a full-blown eating disorder situation.
1: I recently saw, um, moving to more current events um, in the UK, that they're talking about bringing in this um, provision whereby um, large businesses will have calories put on uh, food that they're serving on menus and things like that. I've just seen it's caused quite a bit of debate recently, and from your perspective, do you think that's a good preventative measure
2: for healthy diets? Um, no, I, I don't think it's a good idea because uh, people with an eating disorder will focus on the numbers, the numbers that come up, and it it will put them off ordering something on on a menu if the the numbers are staring at them. They've got enough to deal with when they're trying to eat without having it you know in their faces what exactly what they're eating um i think what's more important is for regular eating for people to learn to maybe eat and then have a have a have a gap of maybe 4 hours and and then eat again rather than some people constantly eat and that can be a real problem and i think during the pandemic with people being at home the fridge is close by. It's very tempting to to just eat constantly. But I think rather than forcing people to look at calories, it's healthier to just try and help people to have regular meals and maybe regular exercise.
1: So what other preventative measures would you suggest going forward for the public to help getting at an early level with an eating disorder to make sure... People become aware of it sooner and then to know the steps to prevent it.
2: I think it, it's really important that somebody is, is diagnosed early. So it's not left, that it's not just left to, um, to see what happens, that somebody goes to get the help that they need as, as, as soon as possible because what happens is the disordered behavior becomes a habit and then once it becomes a habit it is then very difficult to break um so what what i you know especially young girls once they or all young boys once they start to get into over exercising under eating it's 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 a, they can lose weight extremely quickly and those habits can become a, a part of their lives and it, they if they if they can get help early and that doesn't establish then they're much more likely to recover and quickly so
1: would you say then in future especially in Jersey perhaps more mental health service that specializes in eating disorders do you think that would really help to get that so early
2: stage prevention in? I think so I think if some if if there's a group of people who understand how important it is to to get the education into the young person as soon as they, they um, show signs so that they, they know what they're doing to themselves so that they can, before it goes down that slippery road, you know, prevention is better than cure.
1: Thank you to Amy and Karen Dingle for sharing their story and raising these issues, which Express will continue to be covering in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to the Bailiwick podcast. You can find all the past episodes under the Listen tab on our website, bailiwickexpress.com, and in all of the usual pod places. The music at the beginning and end of this podcast is I Shift My Weight by Luno. More next week.